0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Um, I particularly enjoyed that dubstep music. I'm speaking at a, um, a work event uh, over the summer, um, and I've been told I've got to find walk-on music. Um, for this session that I'm facilitating, so I think I might use that. Um, So we, if you're new, we're just looking at a book in the Bible called Judges, and uh, we're going to carry on that sermon series today. Um, The sermon series is called Autonomy, and the whole idea is this, that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Um, I was looking this week, okay, what am I going to read? Kind of, Is there some stuff I can get my hands on in terms of material? And I read the blurb on a book about Judges, and it stuck out to me, so I thought I'd read it to start. It says, if you're looking to feel warm and cozy, I wouldn't recommend the book of Judges. I was thinking, you're not selling your commentary very well when you start like that. It's a bleak story, 21 chapters of the downward spiral of deception, oppression, idolatry, murder, and apostasy. Contrary to what you may recall from Sunday school, even the heroes of Gideon and Samson aren't even heroes. I was like, okay, cool, <laughs> You're really selling it. Um, but it said, we see believers living in Judges in the midst of a pagan community. The Israelites fail to take possession of the land, which means they end up living in a pluralistic society. And that's where many Christians find themselves today. We too live in a pagan pluralistic culture. So pluralistic in this sense, religion, religious pluralism, is about, well what you think is going to get you to heaven, that's fine. And what you think, oh, that's fine. All of us will get to heaven one way or another. We'll just say that's fine. And so we live in that type of society, and we as a church live in this type of culture. And so it's been a really helpful series so far, just digging into what does this book say to us. And we're going to carry that on today. Um, Pete, a couple of weeks ago, was looking at Gideon. And the idea today is we're going to pick up the story of Gideon after his battle with his 300 soldiers. And we're also going to look at the example of his son, another judge called Abimelech. These guys, actually, in these three chapters, are overseeing a horrendous episode in Israel's history. It is bleak, it is dark, it is nasty. So come on the journey today, and we're going to look at how human nature, without any regard for God, is capable of some really horrible things. With each judge, we find so these two judges' vices and tendencies and dangers and pitfalls that are true, not just of what their temptation in their culture was like, but actually things that we as Christians can fall into. And so we're just going to look at these two judges, and we're going to say, how can we apply this to our lives? Hopefully, you're up for coming along and doing that. So we're going to look at Gideon first. Um, Gideon did what was right in his own eyes, we're going to find out. And we're going to kind of contrast what he thought was right with what God says was right. Now, Gideon we looked at a couple of weeks ago, so I want you to shout out, just get you going a little bit. Who remembers something about Gideon's story from two weeks ago? Anybody? Tell me something about Gideon. Not Pete, he preached it. He He was hiding, yeah? He was scared. Anybody else? He was testing God. Okay, anything else? Any other bits and bobs from the story of Gideon? So he had a massive army, and then loads and loads of them left, and he was left with 300 men. He was qualified because he was really, really unqualified. That's what qualified him. He was he was kind of really weak, really a nobody, and then God created in him a sense of being a mighty warrior. But then at the end of Pete's sermon a couple of weeks ago, he reflected on the fact that even though Gideon had been really successful, somehow his success was a problem. And it ended up being that that actually was a weakness in his life. He'd taken success too seriously. It had gone to his head. So we're going to look at Gideon, and we're going to read a few verses from the, from the Bible. So Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men, that's the same 300 men from the battle he'd first won, who were with him. They were exhausted, yet pursuing So he said to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. But the officials said, are the hands of Zabar and Zalmanar already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So pause there for a second. Essentially what these people are saying is, it's all very well you saying that you want me to feed your army, but if you go ahead and lose this battle and don't get these two people you're trying to win... Those people are going to come back to us and say, well, you supported Gideon and they're going to slaughter us. So we're not going to give you any food yet. But Gideon said, well, when the Lord has given Zabar and Zelmanar in my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I don't know what briars are. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them and said, in the same way, the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had said. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. The next verse. So he wins that second victory and he comes back and he took, takes the elders of the city. He took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. He broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So you look at these chapters and you're like, how does any of this apply to our lives? This sounds crazy. Gideon's kind of lost the plot a little bit. Now, what you would usually see in the rhythm of Judges, and it's quite a good book to kind of, you get into this cycle over and over again, so you pick up some lessons from the kind of the cadence, the rhythm of it, is that there'd be a judge that God would raise up, people would decide, yeah, we're going to follow God again, and then there'd be a time of peace. Now, what we saw a couple of weeks ago was God raised up Gideon, and he delivered them in some way. In fact, it was God that delivered them. But instead of there being a time of peace, Gideon just loses the plot. And so Gideon here, having already won victory, decides, I'm going to go and chart another territory. I'm now going to go and do another thing. But this time, the vibe is totally different. So you read these verses in comparison to chapter 7. It doesn't say God tells him to do this. It doesn't say God raised him up. It doesn't say that God helps him. He's just doing this off his own bat. He's just doing this with a sense of flawed leadership. So before it was obvious that God was orchestrating, but now this is much more attacking, personal. He's much more violent and angry. Gideon asks these men to feed his army, and when they say no, his actions, his reaction of anger, kind of reveals something's gone on in Gideon's heart, which Pete alluded to a couple of weeks ago, where he now almost expects respect from these guys. So back in chapter 7, a chapter ago, Much more the heart and the the way that Gideon was would have been to say to these guys something along the lines, hypothetically, of, you know what, I might not win this battle. I'm relying on God. The grace of God is so great that, you know what, I might win this battle, in which case I'll come back and I'll thank you for feeding my men. But he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't point in any way to God. He just says, you know what, if you don't feed me, if you don't feed my men, I'm going to come back for you. And you just think, okay, it's totally a different vibe. So what's happening in Gideon's heart, and how does this apply to you and me? So the idea is we'll look at Gideon and then Abimelech, and in both cases we'll ask, well, what's happening in their heart? So the broad principle I want to unlock just for a few minutes is this idea that every time there's a reaction, a response, a problem like this in our lives, it's a worship issue. Now, I don't mean worship in terms of a style of music. I don't necessarily mean something that happens on a Sunday. But this idea that even if we don't recognize it, the root of most of our problems are a worship problem. Worship being the fact that we love and serve and pour ourselves out to the glory of something or someone. So before we go back to Gideon and look how this applies, I just want to unpack this a little bit more. So after the fall as sinful human beings with corrupt hearts, what we do is we worship things or experiences other than God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. It's one of the mega themes of the Bible. And we don't mean idolatry in terms of physically having an altar or an idol and bowing down to it. But in our lives, we will in some ways put something primary something preeminent, something first. So that could be money or sex. It could be fame or power. It could be relationships or children. You can really worship anything and actually everything. And you are pouring yourself out, giving yourself to someone or something other than God. And so how can you work out what that is in your life? Well, we're going to look at what it is for Gideon and we're going to look at what it is for Abimelech, but these are just going to be two examples I guess if you ask me, what's the outcome I'm hoping that we have this morning? is that we, in humility, come to God and say, God, is there anything that I have put ahead of you today? And so the response for you, if you're a believer here, is as I talk and as we unpack this for Abimelech and for Gideon, I just want you to just be of open heart. God, show me if there's something that I've put ahead of you in primary place of importance, and that you, I'm giving that uh, my time, my money, my energy, and making sacrifices for it. So your idol, what you worship, is your highest treasure, your deepest longing, your identity. Martin Luther, um, he said, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you've got the first two commandments of there's one God and you worship him alone, and then every other commandment is about those first two. It's about worship. So he says, if you obey the first two commandments, you have one God and you worship him alone, then actually you'll obey all of the other commandments, which is a way of looking at this whole idea of idolatry. So adultery is treating sex as God and worshipping sex. It's a worship issue, adultery. Coveting in the Ten Commandments is treating possessions as God and worshipping possessions. Lying. Well, what's lying? That's treating your image and your reputation as God and lying so that people think you're better than you are. If you eat too much, it's a worship issue. Because Paul in the New Testament says, if you eat too much, well, your stomach is your God. If you drink too much, well, actually, it's not alcohol that's your problem. It's idolatry. It's worship. As you take the bottle, you decide that this is going to be my savior. This is going to help me. You're depressed. This will help. I can't sleep. It will help. I'm angry. This will help. I'm stressed out. This will help. You're going to it functionally to be your savior instead of God. You sacrifice money to buy it, your health to drink it, and your life. So if you like, uh, 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 philosopher Peter Crift says, the opposite of Christianity isn't actually atheism, it's idolatry. The opposite of putting Jesus Christ first in your life as your savior, and who you go for, and who you sacrifice your money and time and treasure and talents to, the opposite of that isn't atheism, it's idolizing something else. So back to Gideon. So Gideon did what was right in his eyes. And actually, if you go on to the next slide, Gideon did what was right in his eyes, but success became the God thing for him. So when we talk about what you worship and what you idolize, sometimes it's a good thing that becomes a God thing. So success isn't a bad thing success in itself is neither good or bad. But if you make success the God thing in your life, what you find is a bit like Gideon, you end up in this spiral, this gradual downward spiral in your life. So instead of looking back at the victory God's given Gideon, which is really obvious. I mean, he had 300 soldiers, and God gave him this massive victory. But instead of seeing God's grace in that, And pointing to him, what he does in this next chapter is he worships the honor and the success and the the glory that could potentially be his, and he points all of the fingers back at himself and says, well, look at me, look at me, worship me. And the reaction of anger that he has against these people, actually, is something we need to ask ourselves as well. What makes us angry? There are ways of telling whether there's something else you're worshipping in your life. And anger is one of those ways, actually. Tim Keller, who um, has written a great book on judges that I've looked at, he says, one question to ask yourself as you read about Gideon is, what area of your life or work do you feel like you should get more recognition for than you currently do? I don't necessarily just mean career. But what area of your life, your parenting or your friendships or how reliable you are or the stuff you do at church or there could be a huge list. Do you feel like, you know what, I don't get the recognition I deserve. Before long, you realize actually the heart is so corrupt without God. And even for a Christian, our tendency is towards this feeling of, oh, I should get some glory, some honor for this, rather than the grace of God at work in my life is evidence that he is good. So a way of seeing what you worship is to think, well, should I get more recognition? For all of us, we are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. We can be our own solution. So say, Emma, say you desire to prove yourself by being financially stable or being a financial success. Would it actually be better for Emma to be successful or to be a failure? Well, if she fails, potentially, improving herself as financially successful, if she fails, then it might cause her to realize, you know what, what I've got is by the grace of God anyway, and I can't even on my own do very much. And I come back to you, God, and I say, you know what? I'm a bit stuck. I need your help. And you'll see the grace of God as her life just gets woven back together. But what if she succeeds and succeeds and succeeds? Now, success in itself is not a bad thing. But there is a danger that we can fall into, even with career success, that as we succeed, we see it as confirmation that we are saving ourselves, that we are doing these things ourselves without the hand of God in our life that we can control and grab fulfillment from our careers. We can become slaves to success and money and feel proud and superior to others. Okay, so let's slow down for a second before we move on to any more about Gideon. What about you? What about in your life? Is there an area of your life where you're pouring yourself out, you're pouring out your time, you're sacrificing your money, you're pouring out your energy, It's the thing you think of at night. It's the thing you think of in the morning. It's your obsession. It's what you are living for. It's what you're hoping for more of. It's what you go to when you're not happy. It's your happy place. It's what you dream of in the future. Is there some area that God just wants to pause and put his finger on and say to you, you know what? What's happening there is a natural tendency of the heart towards idolizing and putting something else first. I'm not going to list out what that might be, but my hope from this morning as we just now look at another area of Gideon and Abimelech's lives is just that as the sermon goes on you just allow God to speak to you about that and we'll respond at the end you know the grace of god is the antidote to all of this so so with gideon what is the if that's what's right in his eyes this success story and success being god what's right in god's eyes well actually grace In Ephesians it says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And this next bit is great if success is an idol for you. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even our success and good works is the grace of God that he has planned to outwork in our lives. It's easy for us to think we're achieving things ourselves, but actually Ephesians, Paul in Ephesians is saying, you know what, God's prepared good things for you to do as a gift of grace. You can't even boast about it. Jesus actually can clean us from our wrong reactions to success and other idols. He can restore and redeem our hearts and set us clean again today. So I'm going to pray for that in a little bit. Okay, let's just look, as we finish, just at, at two other areas of idolatry in Gideon and Abimelech's life. And actually, it's one that they share, like father, like son. So Gideon has this son, Abimelech, and we're going to look at how they did what was right in their eyes. And again, it's, a, it's almost like a window into the heart, especially in this time of Israel's life and of their lives, where God's pretty much not even considered. It's a window into the human nature when it's totally disregarding God. So let's read a couple more passages then. We're looking at uh, Judges 8, 9, and 10. So I'm just picking out particular verses because it's a huge old chapter. I timed it in case I wanted to read it this morning. It would have been the entire sermon. So Judges 8. Gideon says, let me make a request of you. This is to the people of Israel. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. And Pete covered this a couple of weeks ago as well. So Gideon then takes all this gold. He made an e- gold. He makes an ephod of it and puts it in his city in opera. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What we find is that he makes this gold ephod. The idea of a gold ephod, actually, is this is a way of you telling what God is saying. So if you want to get a decision, back in the day there was this gold ephod and there was this element of God's direction of yes and no about decisions in the people, So um, what Gideon has done, he has said, actually, I don't want to be your king, but what I do want is all of your gold. And what I'm next going to do is put together this way of becoming the decision maker in my hometown. So what he does is he actually idolizes, he worships, he has this sense of need for being the king, being the one with the power, being the one with the status, being the one with the position. Now, it's slightly different to idolizing success. So to want success isn't necessarily the same as saying, I want promotion, I want to be at the very top. But what we see from Gideon is actually, he makes this gold uh, ephod, and he actually then has uh, 70 children with a load of different wives, and gets a concubine, and has an illegitimate child as well, and he begins to live like a king. He begins to then say to people, if you want to have a decision, you know where to go. It's not to God, it's to me. If you want to come to the presence of God, there's this great ephod. And what you read is that they prostitute themselves, as in they give themselves, instead of to God, to this idol, to this thing. And it's all because of Gideon. In fact, what you find is, in the other stories of the other judges, it's the people who, when the um, judge dies... They slide back into sin. But Gideon, he's meant to be the judge here. He's leading them away from God. He's leading them into unfaithfulness to God. I'll give you that one back. So he has a worship problem, which some of us have as well. He needs to be needed. He wants to be wanted. He wants to be the guy that people go to. He wants to be the way that people get to God. And I want to say again... A kind of promotion and position and responsibility isn't a bad thing. But there'll be some of us here that actually, a little like Gideon, we've got to the place maybe even slowly over a long period of time where position is important to us somehow, where responsibility or power or influence is important to us somehow, where even promotion within a career is really important to us. And were that to be taken away, we'd feel like the guts of our lives have gone. And for Gideon, this is just revealing something that's gone on in his heart, this whole thing with the gold and living like a king, where he wants to be the person of status and of responsibility. He likes the buzz of influence. You get the idea from Gideon. Jesus, on the other hand, and you find each of these judges is a bit like a shadow of Jesus in some way. Some of them, it's because of the good things in their lives, and you're like, oh, Jesus is like that, but even better. But in the case of Gideon and Abimelech, it's a lot more, well, in the absence of godly character, we see how much we really need a true Savior. If you look at Jesus, well, rather than seeking power or position or status on earth, we read in Mark 10, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we need to check our hearts. If we're putting Jesus first in our life, we're putting him and his kingdom first, we're going to be looking to live like him. But if even over a period of time, we've allowed ourselves just to be really living for status, promotion, responsibility for who we are, the name, the name badge, the tag, the, the title, then actually that's not like Jesus. That's something that's crept in a bit like it did in the life of Gideon. But then, like father, like son... If you read then about Abimelech, there's not as many verses about Abimelech, but I'll tell you the story of what happens. If we get the verse up later, that's fine. But the story of Abimelech then is that he's born not of the 70, he's not part of the 70 sons of Gideon. He's the one illegitimate son born by the concubine. And he's born and he goes to his mother's, the concubine's tribe. And he says to them, you know what? isn't it better than rather than the responsibility be shared to rule over Israel with these 70 brothers, these 70 sons, isn't it better just to have one? And you see this heart that Gideon's got in Abimelech straight away. So isn't it better for you just to have me in charge? And that tribe says, all right, yeah, well, we'll give you a load of money. But that money is idle money. It's like money that's dirtied. He doesn't mind because he's not being promoted by God. He's not like the other judges who God is bringing up, raising up at the right time. He is hungry for power. He pushes his way through and says to this tribe, you know what, I'll take your money. And you read in the chapter that he then goes and buys a following, which isn't the best way to do it. (laughs) And they're not the most faithful following, you'll find out. But he buys this following. What he does is he grabs the power. He elevates himself without any knowledge or acknowledgement of God or any obedience to God. He thrusts himself then into responsibility. I wonder if his past, not having necessarily been thought of as the one who would rule or the one who would have responsibility, I wonder if that past means that this illegitimate son has this overall idol in his life of I'll prove them wrong, I will show them. And again, when it comes to what's first in our hearts, Having an attitude of, I'll love them, I'll look after them as a leader or as a parent or as an influencer of some sort, I'm going to look out for others. What you find in Abimelech is, I'll show them. I'll prove myself. It's a self-righteous, self-justification. It's not looking for God to elevate him at the right time. It's grabbing at power. So it's very similar to Gideon. What you then find, if we go on to the next couple of slides, um. Keep going? Yeah, so after they give him seven pieces of silver out of the house of Barbarith, which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless followers who followed him, he went to his father's house at Opera and killed his brothers on the stone of Jeroboam. Seventy men on one stone. So hungry, so devoid of any god in his life is he, that having got power, he wants to consolidate his position. And so he kills all of his half-brothers. Next, then. So what you find is Abimelech is then opposed by these people that he goes to initially to give him the money and to elevate him because, as we've said, they weren't true followers. They oppose him, and he says, it says, Abimelech took an axe in his hand, cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. He said to the men who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do as I've done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold of this big tower. They set the stronghold on fire so that all of the people of the Tower of Shechem also died. So he's killed all his brothers, and then he's only got one tribe that supported him in the first place. He takes his men, and he burns the whole thing down. Go on to the next slide, then. There was a strong tower, and this is in a different town nearby. He's got no beef against them necessarily, but there's a strong tower in a different city. All the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. He's going for the same tactic, the same MO. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And that's how the story ends. A woman from a tower gets a big stone and just drops it. Gravity, head, no more Abimelech. If you're going to sum up the story of Abimelech, it's that in contrast with the way that God would usually bring through a judge, where God would usually say, "I want to bring my people back to me by helping them recognise their sin. I'm bringing you through." He grabs that power completely over the entire story of Abimelech. Ignores God in every single way lives this crazy life of violence and rage and anger, worshipping something totally else what happens then is you see an exact opposite of what God has called his people to, exact opposite of what God calls us to in obedience he's got a worship problem God calls all of the judges puts them in place, the other leaders and judges govern on the basis of a revelation from God And in fact, often there's a time of waiting before someone comes through. But in this story, there's no waiting. There's Gideon, Abimelech, grabbing at power, coming straight through. Contrast it with 1 Peter 5. We're actually, in teaching about leadership, we see in the New Testament, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. If you're worshipping God, if you're truly putting him first, then your heart attitude is out of that New Testament passage where you say, you know what, I'm going to just wait until God, if he decides to, will elevate me to some sort of responsibility. I'm not going to grab at it, I'm not going to idolize responsibility, I'm not going to idolize position or status or a name badge. What I'm going to do is let God do his work and just be obedient. So where does the story actually finish? If you look at the beginning of Judges 10, which is where we'll finish, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, and he judged Israel 23 years. And so as we finish, what we find is the cycle begins to start again, where somebody dies. Now in the previous stories of the Judges, the people end up, Um, subject to another army, don't they? And so there's some type of salvation. But what we find in Judges 10 is that God just sends somebody to save them from themselves. (laughs) They have been led badly by Gideon and Abimelech. The people and the leaders have totally rejected God and gone off to worship something else. But by the grace of God, even though they don't ask and they're not seeking it at all, he sends someone to save them from themselves. So if you're feeling this morning, I need saving, maybe it's that you need saving from yourself. Maybe it's that there's an idol in your life. Maybe that there's something that you're living for. My answer here is that what was good in God's eyes was grace. And that's the end game, is that this chapter, if you like, closes off with God sending a saviour. My prayer this morning is that if you have identified in your life an area where you need to just come back to Jesus, lay down an idol, lay down a worship, a priority, a most important place, something else that you're giving your glory, your time to, that grace is the end game, is that Jesus is sending a Savior, that Jesus has sent a Savior, that all you need to do this morning, rather than wallow in your sense of having a corrupt heart, is just say, Jesus, I come back to you. It's your grace, you're the Savior. At the right time, Jesus, you were elevated. At the right time, you came to live as a humble leader, complete opposite of these guys, to be my Savior. God's people in this part of Judges ultimately need a leader who will rescue them from themselves, from the failings and ambitions of their hearts and the impact that that has on others. I'd love to just pray as we close. God, we want to come to you and recognize we are in need of a Savior. Our hearts are a murky place sometimes. Our motives, our attitudes, our reactions to other people, our our first love, our first place. It's a murky old place. Jesus, we want to thank you so much. That as we come to the table today, it is by your grace that we can come to you. You are the solution. You are the savior. You're the one sent to save us. To redeem our hearts, to give us a new heart. To lead us in the right ways. To lead us away from idolatry. Maybe there was something that God revealed to you. Just whilst your eyes are closed, why don't you just begin just simply just to say to God, I'm going to repent of living my life towards this thing. Instead, I'm going to turn around 180 degrees and walk to you, live for you, pursue you, worship you. Father, we want to thank you that you, you wash us clean. You make us clean again. That if we confess our sin, you're faithful and true to purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father. We love you. We love you, Jesus. We love the Savior that you are in comparison to these guys. We want to thank you so much. You're here by your grace.